Good afternoon and welcome to Future State. Industry leaders discuss today's priorities and tomorrow's challenges, a health system CIO media Inc. production. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program. Nice way to view the screen, click on the top center, get it in side-by-side -side mode. Then you can adjust the divider to get the slides and the video boxes the size you want them. And it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first, we're gonna go about 35 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Omar Awan, Chief Data and Digital Officer with Atrium Health, Dr. Samir Badlani, Chief Digital Officer and EVP for Technology Services at Fairview Health Services, and I will be your moderator. And then we'll have our audience Q&A. Uh, so let's jump right in. We're gonna have a fun conversation here. Uh, please give us an overview of your organization and role. Omer, can we start with you? Yes, of course. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Um, I would love to share some insights and get your feedback. Uh, so I'm part of the Atrium Health Organization. We are based in Charlotte. Uh, we are about 38 hospitals uh, across the Carolinas, North and South in Georgia, uh, including the recent addition of Wake Forest Medical School and Health System and Floyd Health in Rome, Georgia. Uh, we are about 71,000 plus teammates uh, and serving a combined population of about 7 million uh, people. Uh, we are one of the top six uh, largest health systems with an integrated medical school um, or major school affiliation. Um, and our mission is to improve health, elevate hope, and advance healing for all. My role is that of a chief data and digital officer. Um, and so I've got responsibility for data and analytics. And in terms of digital um, in IT building initiatives in the consumer experience and digital health space, including virtual health um, on all the technologies interacting with the consumer, uh, both internal and external. Um, and um, and all, also working with uh, the innovation team um, and the partnership teams in terms of disruptive technologies and bringing them to bear. Very good, very good, Samir. Good morning, good afternoon. Um, delighted to be here, Samir Badlani. I'm a physician by background. Currently serve as the Chief Digital Officer and EVP for Technologies for MHealth Fairview. Uh, we are based out of uh, Minnesota, about 10 hospitals, serve about 1.1 million patients. Uh, it's a combination uh, joint collaborative between University of Minnesota and Fairview Health. So it's both academic and community-based hospitals across the state. Um, my role is uh, a bunch of things. Uh, so as the title notes, uh, Chief Digital Officer and EVP for Technology. So it's a combination of CIO and uh, CDO roles. Also have the privilege of leading uh, the cybersecurity function, data analytics, informatics, uh, marketing experience and design uh, co-partner with our chief marketing officer to run our digital design studio. So uh, it's a fun job and I'm delighted to be serving in this role. Very good, thank you. All right, next question. Uh, <clears throat> Samir, let's start with you. What do you see as the main trends healthcare IT leaders need to be positioning their organizations to handle? And what is your advice for doing so? Sure. Uh, I think, you know, there are two or three things that come to mind. Uh, the digital transformation is finally getting real uh, for almost five, six years. Uh, you know, I would be interested what Omer thinks of this, but for the last five, six years, or maybe even more, digital meant putting an app in front of a, a patient and then calling yourself digital. But the rest of the experience was still very brick and mortar, not consumer focused really leverage data and analytics. So COVID has definitely pushed the needle on that. And a lot of organizations are trying to understand where they stand in this new reality. The way I describe it, healthcare is going to go through a rapid change where over the next five years, there will be a cross section of Amazonification and Uberization of healthcare. And you have to find where you sit there. So many healthcare organizations 
try to be everything to everybody. Uh, we are working hard to understand what this means to us. What is how does this fit in with our strategy? So it's not just the digital transformation. IT leaders will have to get comfortable being co-pilots of organizational business strategy as well. And then the third uh, biggest trend, uh, which I think a lot of us will resonate, is the cyber risk that is uh, just exploded in the last, uh, you know, I would say two years, and at minimum is 4x of what it used to be before. So this is real. Uh, people will have to really look at this as a core skill versus an add-on you do on the side, and it's going to consume a lot of money, mindset, and bandwidth. <clears throat> Samir, as a, a follow-up, you mentioned Amazon and Uber, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so, obviously, if 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 are they are they the models of what we want to be? And it can't be just as simple as watching them and saying okay and replicating what they do. Is it is it that simple? No, it's not that simple. And uh, the terms I used, uh, you know, just to repeat them are Amazonification and Uberization. And you see different. Uh, so look at primary care, for example. You know, the people we used to look at were one medical as an example, really, you know, efficient, consumer driven boutique type of care. And they're still doing very well. But then you have all these others like Babylon 98.6 and many others who are coming in with a lot of private equity funds are digitally native and looking at convenience and uh, frictionless experience that's driven by digital and data to really take over the market share of our patients. And then they also think like retailers and what retailers are very good at is upselling and cross-selling. And typically in healthcare, especially coming from a doctor, that would be frowned upon that, what are you talking about? In our world, upselling and cross-selling are closing more clinical and quality gaps. A very simple example, if somebody comes in for a knee uh, pain, we get very happy if we're able to schedule them on time, get them in, fix their pain, they give us a good patient satisfaction score and everybody starts high-fiving. A retailer with a Amazonification or a Uberization mindset would never think like that. First, they would try to figure out why do I need to even bring this patient in? Can I take care of them in their home mm. environment? Secondly, they would think, what else can I do for this patient? So in my context, uh, I'll put myself on the spotlight. If I go in for foot pain, uh, it should not just be about foot pain. They should make sure that uh, any labs I'm due on get done in the same visit any scheduling I need to do, let's say for a colonoscopy, uh, get scheduled in the visit, any other uh, behavioral lifestyle changes that need to be added on, get handled in the same interaction. You know, one very uh, interesting example that I heard through a colleague of mine who does strategy work uh, in Texas is CVS Health is getting into urgent care. And you know, when questioned, why do you think you can do urgent care? Uh, it's very different from, you know, um, sorry, they're getting into chronic care. They're already in urgent care, uh, my apologies. So when asked them, you know, chronic care is very different from urgent care. What do you think you will be able to offer there? The retort from CVS very interestingly and appropriately was, well, we see your diabetic patient nine times in our CVS pharmacy a month. You're lucky if you see your patient three times a year, if that. So what IT leaders have to really understand is how do you take digital assets and you complement uh, the face-to-face -face visits with more touch points so that you can upsell, cross-sell, or in our world, close more clinical and quality gaps and earn the right to continue being the primary care provider in every possible way uh, for our, what our patients need. Very good. Omer? Yes, absolutely. So, um, so from a trends perspective, um, now there's several in the market. Um, that I can point out, but I completely agree with Samir. Uh, the one, uh, first and foremost, is consumerization and personalization. And to take the point that um, you and Samir were just talking about, taking it to the next level is, you know, with, with Amazonification, like Samir was mentioning, we can receive goods the same day we order them. And not only that, we can track them minute by minute uh, from the placement to delivery. Um, so it's not surprising that the patient expects the same high level of efficiency. 
um, and transparency from our healthcare providers. And still we have healthcare systems um, that may, um, where we have patients that may have to wait weeks or months for an appointment and have only a vague idea of uh, when their exam results will be available. Um, so, you know, it's, um, so that's one, I think inform intertwined with that is personalization aspect. So um, I wanted to share something that I dabbled upon just last week was, and Deloitte uh, in their survey mentioned that an ideal healthcare experience actually requires a personal touch, uh, whether that encounter occurs virtually or in person. So personalization is important, even if uh, I think, even if a person is at, interacting virtually with the healthcare system to make them feel that we know them. So if they're on a specific care journey, like say uh, on a cancer um, journey uh, rehab, um, it should give them the impression, it should make them feel we know you um, and present with relevant information rather than having them to surf through a gamut of things or a canned approach. The second one, I think, um, uh, which is becoming more and more, and uh, like somebody was mentioning about the pandemic has really brought it to uh, focus is virtual care. I mean, you know, uh, uh, we continue to see the emergence of virtual care solutions uh, across the care continuum um, from telehealth visits to virtual hospitals, you touched on home-based care, um, remote patient monitoring, all of that. Um, again, just wanted to share, um, this was an eye-opener for me. I knew that during the pandemic, uh, we saw new heights of virtual care, but I didn't really see these numbers and just want to share um, from AHA, American Hospital Association, um, they just said that um, health systems believe that they're up to 40%, that up to 40% of primary care visits actually can be done virtually. Um, and now they're noticing that um, patients um, actually, um, their willingness um, to opt for uh, virtual care telemedicine has increased uh, to like up to 66%. Um, so the growth that we saw um, in this virtual care uh, during the pandemic, I think it's something that's going to continue to grow. So that's a trend we're going to watch uh, clearly as well. Um, and tightly intertwined with what we are also noticing when you talk about telehealth, kind of a subcategory is the greater focus on mental and behavioral health. Um, so the pandemic has um, exposed uh, the mental health crisis that our nation um, has long been facing. Um, and especially because of the inadequate resources that are devoted to it, a lot of reliance is on, is on technology. Uh, and again, according to AHA, um, they mentioned that 70% uh, of behavioral health providers reported that they plan to continue offering telehealth services post-pandemic. Um, second last is one of this whole gamut of um, predictive analytics, artificial intelligence and automation. Um, I mean, all of those things, they bring tremendous value um, that cannot be undermined. Um, and lastly, just wanna, um, it's uh, true to a lot of organizations, including ours, which is heightened attention to health equity. Um, so now the pandemic has again brought, placed a spotlight um, on this aspect as well. And I think we feel um, that data analytics is a very powerful asset in this space and can single-handedly uncover organizations' performance um, and help bridge gaps. Very good. Um, you mentioned uh, the idea of patients having to wait weeks for an appointment. Um, that is that made me think of where the digital world meets the underlying processes of the health system. Um, there are some problems that you you can identify and you can create the tools, but if the underlying workflow and capacity and staffing isn't there. It doesn't matter how great the scheduling tool is if the appointments don't exist, right? So do you find as a digital leader that sometimes your ambitions and your goals hit the underlying workflow and that's where the buck stops, so to speak, and you can't go further until the organization does things from an operational point of view? You're, you're spot on with that. So it requires... So so bringing about those changes, right, you have to think through the entire process. It cannot be very episodic. You have to think of the foundational operations that will support those. So that does require a lot of, I mean, a cultural change at minimum, but requires a lot of working with operational leaders. So we, like in the virtual healthcare space, we work really tightly with our virtual healthcare leadership, non-IS, non-IT, um, to make sure that we've got those processes that are aligned and supportive um, of what we do. So, you know, um, and that really helps. 
um, just to share with you just a, a few things that uh, resonate um, during the pandemic and still we continue to see um, a great deal of uh, visits. Um, we noticed about 44% uh, of our urgent care visits actually transformed um, into um, virtual care visits. And about 35% of the office visits uh, were replaced by virtual visits as well. Um, but that would never be possible if we didn't have the supporting processes behind the scene. Samir, do you have any thoughts on uh, my question about as far as uh, getting that underlying operational element to change to make it uh, the digital trans transformation work better? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of thoughts there. One, you're right uh, in the way Omer responded. Uh, digital is as much about cultural and operational change. And honestly, it's about 30% about deploying technology. The rest is all workflow, business case, and mindset. The second thing that digital and fundamentally why it's different from the technology modernization or digitization of about two decades ago is you really start looking for a virtuous cycle instead of looking at everything as a linear, you know, a factory model, do your warehouse, do your storefront, and then reaching your consumer, almost anything can become a value add service. And in this case, if you look at uh, telehealth, uh, what I'm sure Omer's organization must have also done during the COVID time is we rapidly increased our asynchronous care models. So pre-diagnosis and post-diagnosis with COVID, we were able to handle a lot more patients using our uh, platform services, uh, Zipnosis on the front end and GetWell Loop on the back end, on the uh, latter end, not the back end, where we were able to handle almost 2,000, 3,000 patients a day, pre-diagnosis and post-diagnosis without any significant human involvement. So if every time we put out a digital solution, that requires an equal effort by humans on the other side, we should stop right there. That's not digital. That's just, you know, a fanciful thinking that putting, you know, an Apple product in a workflow or something like that makes it innovative. That's what we were all, uh, you know, succumbing to uh, a few years ago. So really thinking about, I'm going to put this service out there and how can I have significant automation behind it? And how can I not involve a doctor or a nurse unless absolutely necessary for either the experience or the decision-making should be, uh, you know, checks that we hold ourselves accountable to. Uh, Samir, uh, we, the, the idea is to push uh, digital first, right? And to mm -hmm. create a digital, push people to handle their business with the health system in a digital fashion and to keep them in that digital world as much as possible without a human touch. It's efficient, right? Right. But, but we know in our own personal lives, in our interactions with many organizations, that there's probably nothing worse than being pushed into a digital inner engagement that doesn't work. Right. I mean, phone trees, uh, voice recognition that doesn't work, can't get a human being on the phone, can be extremely frustrating. So there is a, a high cost to rolling this stuff out and getting it wrong uh, in terms of user frustration. So what are your thoughts around that? It's a great question, Anthony. I think the biggest fallacy about digital is it's about zero human interaction. No, it's about appropriate human interaction for the appropriate use cases. And that's why uh, my colleague Scott Weber and I together, we partnered on launching our design studio because being a digital leader in your organization, like I said, has probably 30% to do with technology the other 30% is about the consumer experience. So if you are not designing the correct experience and launching technology tools, uh, you're bound to have situations like you spoke about. So uh, when I choose to not have human interaction and when I choose to have human interactions are my choices, all digital does is it creates a level of uh, convenience and frictionless uh, use of an asset that it leads to me being happy. And digital is not just about what faces your consumers. Digital is as much about your back office or your shared business services. I'm a big proponent of you know, boring projects that are related to automation and probably don't make any 
publication out there, but there are so many things behind the scenes that we do in healthcare that are repetitive, that are very labor intensive and lead to a lot of inconsistencies because of the way it's been designed that lend themselves to uh, digital transformation. So when I think of my role, I try to think equal parts about the clinical, but then another part about the, you know, the financial or the operational side of running a large business like healthcare. Supply chain, rev cycle, um, call centers, all of them are fair game. And, you know, there are so many examples you can look at. My favorite one to analyze is uh, Delta, the airlines. Uh, and, you know, they decided uh, that flying in a plane is going to suck no matter what. Uh, <laughs> you can only make that as much better. You know, after a stage in life, you're too fat for any chair. Your back is too old for any reclining, anything. But it's the pre and post elements of being in a plane journey that they are really spending significant time thinking about how to design it and using their app to make it better. And, you know, I would suggest next time you go on a flight, look at what that experience is like and how that changes every six months. Uh, that's where we can learn a lot of lessons, you know, um, with what Delta is doing and what we can do differently. Very good. Omer, um, as I mentioned, it's it, nothing is better than a good digital interaction, right? I just feel so efficient and clean. Nothing is worse than a bad digital interaction when it's going badly and you still can't get a person on the phone. How do you make sure that the things that ultimately get rolled out and become public facing and, and for the public use are ready for prime time? So it's a great question. And I want to echo most of the thoughts that Samir share as well, because at the end of the day, we want to make sure that all our experiences or the technologies that we're going to roll out um, the central focus is the patient, the consumer, and they're all centered around it. So we have to envision that whether it's a, a test in the lab um, or some um, prototyping, but that is at the heart of it. Uh, one thing I do want to share is, is that, you know, in terms of also uh, AI, ML, uh, there's a lot of data, especially if we are trying to train the predictive models, uh, there's a lot of emphasis nowadays on that space. Uh, we can we try to train those predictive models on the data from the organization so that it's close to the experience. It's it's replicating and producing the outputs that are um, relevant uh, to the organization. But we don't have enough data on the humans, and we are never training those around the human interaction, how humans will interact um, with the outcomes, the output. And so that has been um, a topic of debate uh, with uh, among the the pundits and gurus of AI ML uh, that we don't have enough human uh, data. We never really captured um, human interaction data with the application of the digital side of the house. Mm -hmm. We're always very focused on this is the experience. We want to digitize it, but never how does a human interact? How do they uh, present it with this? How what are the behaviors that come forward? What are the attitudes? I mean, what should happen there? So I think we are evolving, and so the fact that these discussions are happening, um, the, the experiences that will come forward will be much more. Uh, in line with user expectations. But nevertheless, I think um, the key from our perspective is also experimentation, uh, building verticals in the sandbox. You have to test and try. There is no cookie cutter approach. Um, and so you have to um, do as much as you can unless we reach that point where uh, we have more data that we can bring to bear. Very good. Um, Samir, talk to me about any kind of sequence of, of how this stuff is supposed to work um, as far as when there a need is identified, you know, what do we want to do? What do we want to digitize? There's a million things we can select from a million projects. Who's deciding? Are you deciding? What's the governance process that, that, that works to help identify what we're going to try and tackle? So how does that work in your health system right now? You have a, a portfolio of things you're working on. Why those things? How did they get selected? Take me through that process a little bit. Sure. Um, you know, first of all, I'll admit that it's not a perfect process. You know, we have had so many uh, curveballs, fastballs thrown at us over the last three years that uh, it would be foolish to think that we have this clean process. There is an entry point, there's an analysis phase, and then there is a decision-making phase and off you go. 
we are re-attempting that in my organization to bring better focus and all of us in senior leadership are leaning in. The way I think of my work is in three or four large buckets. Uh, obviously, as a technology leader, I have to make sure there is infrastructure resiliency and cyber resiliency. So, you know, think of it from a Maslow scale going from bottom to up. There are some basic needs around operations, uh, network to keep the system running that we have to keep, you know, the care and feeding of it going. What we try to do is, along with lifecycle maintenance, we look for leapfrogging opportunities because something was delayed by two years. Let's not try to replace it what we should have done two years ago, but let's try to replace it with what we need two years from now. So there is that future outlook that we are trying to bring into our organization. Beyond that, uh, you know, there is a layer of how do you build intelligence and experience capabilities in our ecosystem. So that's the second bucket that we are looking at of having a steady level of investment in. You know, we're not a CVS, we're not, you know, a Google, I can't throw billion dollars on an idea and have no worries whether it sticks or not. Healthcare is a minus two to a plus two percent margin business for most companies. So we have to be very thoughtful, frugal, and purposeful where we put in our dollars. I try to remind myself and my team that every dollar we spend on my salary, on anybody's salary, is coming from clinical care. And if we don't have a very good use for it, uh, think about how much you could do for the community uh, in a free clinic, as an example. So that's the level of uh, you mm -hmm. know um, self-reflection I like to do. The third thing is really have a business lens on it. So is this project going to improve my customer acquisition or going to improve the share of care I have with a particular customer? Like I spoke about before, you come to me for your diabetic care. Can I earn your business for your primary care? You come for me for primary care. Can I earn your business for your uh, rheumatology work as well? The second is improving the experience of the patient and navigation once they are in our ecosystem. How long does it take to get a follow-up? What is our communication style to you when you call our help desk? Not just how quickly we pick up the phone, but do we remember why you called last time? Think Delta. They know exactly why what I called for last time within seconds and what I need potentially need based on what they know about me. The fourth bucket is around uh, thinking of platforms, really looking at uh, areas like automation, CRM, data analytics. How do you keep building those up? Those are not overnight uh, investments. And if you try to make it overnight, then the cost to value is too uh, lopsided. Uh, and then the final one is uh, always thinking about how to turn digital into a PNL on its own. Right now, digital is an enabler. Uh, for me, success would be that in X number of years, digital can stand on its own as a PNL. And when you looked at the explosion of virtual care, asynchronous care during COVID, that was the first real-world example that digital can be its own PNL. Um, so those are the ways that we try to break up our work. Very good, Omer. Thoughts around governance and and how projects uh, do or should get selected and move forward in this area where there's a million things to pick from. So, um, from our perspective, um, you can look at it in two broad categories. That's what we um, employ. One is that we have a very good relationship with service line, um, um, all the service lines. So. Um, when I say service line, I also mean like, you know, clinical areas, I'm talking about supply chain management, like uh, somebody was talking back office things, um, all, all of the service line. And what we want to make sure is, is they also know that um, if there are needs that arise in their areas, um, there's opportunities to digitize uh, certain areas or all of their uh, areas, maybe. Um, that they interlock with us and that transforms into projects and then we take those projects through our governance and that's in the governance structure that's where we affect internally in terms of um, the value to the organization the ROI the time it takes to get that ROI and all those kind of things so that's one way the other way is um, also that as I alluded to earlier uh, working very tightly with our innovation team um, and our partnership team so many times we've got these very novel ideas coming uh, because they keep doing the horizon scanning in terms of what's transpiring in the industry. 
uh, what are the new disruptive technologies um, and um, new value um, solutions that our service lines may not know about. Um, and so um, that path helps us then take those ideas back to our um, in different areas, clinical and business, to share with them. Um, and then collectively brainstorm and see if there um, is value there. Uh, we are very problem focused. Um, so we always uh, want to make sure that we're trying to solve for something and that we do not, you know, um, get dragged into that SOS or shiny objects syndrome. Uh, we just want to make sure that we are focused, um, always trying to solve something. So those are the two areas. And that's, that's the two doors into our, um, you may say, um, uh, the, the, to build a list of digital projects. And then they go through the governance and very thoroughly uh, before they're sanctioned and we can take them on. Very good. So Samir, would you say it's, uh, and I think you hinted at this, that it happens all different ways. It's not a super clean, one size fits all process of here's where ideas come from and here's what happens. Ideas can come from you in terms of a top down, they could come from your innovation department, or they could come up from the actual department that ultimately is the operational department and would be using it, right? They could have the idea and say, hey, we right. would like to do this. So it can come up from them, come down from you, over from innovation. So then it has to be analyzed and perhaps put through a governance process. Is this something we want to do? And then after that, it's got to be coordinated across the department security has to be brought in and then the department that will ultimately be using it has to be brought on board which would vary in terms of how that's done depending on whether or not they originated the idea if they originated the idea much more likely they're going to be on board if they did not originate it if it was brought from somewhere else and but they have to carry it out might have to be handled a little differently it might have at, at all on track with how some of this stuff goes? Yeah, mostly I would say you would be surprised even if the idea came from a certain department, how, uh, you know, how much time and effort it takes to do the change management. Mm -hmm. Because an idea may come from an individual in a department, but moves the cheese of the entire workforce. So uh, you have to look at it that way. Uh, you know, one of the common challenges is that somebody wants to put in a new workflow or a new data collection and immediately it does not benefit everybody in that group. So why would they want to do it? It's an extra training for everybody. Um, you know, one of my favorite examples is when Apple Watch first came out seven, eight years ago, uh, we had strong support to use it in our diabetic clinic. Uh, and, you know, we were like, yeah, this makes sense. It's an amazing piece of new technology. Let's get behind it. We put in all the effort, turned around, it was only one clinician who was interested. None of his patients signed up and the three people who signed up were the clinic staff. So, you know, the change management is not just cross-functional, it's within your ecosystem as well. And what we try to balance is, do we have X number of projects that are absolutely necessary for, you know, on the Maslow scale, another group of projects that are there for business growth and clinical and safety targets, but then always try to leave some bandwidth for innovation experiments. And, and like Omer said, have the service lines decide, you know, who gets priority because I don't care which organization you are, you can never have enough money and enough time to do everything that comes your way. And the uh, metric behind a good governance process is when you are saying no to good ideas. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, if you are just saying no to bad ideas, that's not governance. Uh, you really have to get focused. And, you know, many companies out there outside healthcare, General Mills is a great example. The CIO there is a esteemed colleague and he shares how IT department will do a certain set of activities. And then they have uh, X amount of dollars and time to do growth projects. And then the business competes amongst themselves, almost like a shark tank and says, you know, this year the yogurt division wins because their project is a better idea or has all the appropriate business ROI. And then they're supposed to come back and prove that by using technology and uh, organizational change management bandwidth, they were able to get that result. And that counts as their score for next year's process. And, you know, I would love to get there in my own ecosystem. We're not there yet. Uh, we are really bad in healthcare and look back. Uh, we just move on to the next idea 
and really don't think about why did I do what I did? What did I learn from there? And agile, you know, as a PM uh, mindset uh, goes in that direction, but the patience and the diligence to do a look back on the, all the projects done last year, it's a big cultural change for anybody. Omer, would you say you have to be comfortable in this position with um, everything not being black and white and based on pure data in terms of projects, which projects to do, when to do them, when they worked, when they haven't worked? Do you have to be comfortable with a lot of gray and ambiguity and feeling? And it, it sounds like that. It sounds like it's not, you know, pure black and white, pure by the numbers. So, um, great point. So, I mean, you, you try as much as you can um, to have data-driven um, decision-making and help you do that. But the reality of the matter is, is that um, we are learning um, more and more how to operate effectively in this era of ambiguity, uh, because not everything may be very crystal clear. Um, one other thing um, related to your question, I think, is also being able to be flexible um, and being able to pivot is another key thing. So like, you know, all these initiatives that are going on at any given time, um, but then all of a sudden you just need to uh, pause them, um, especially like for right now is a good case. I mean, we're seeing these uh, spikes because of this Delta variant. So uh, everyone is pitching in, rolling up their sleeves, uh, even if you're not clinical to help out uh, and as maybe runners or in different capacities. Uh, well, that puts a pause on other things, but then that means when you pick them up, uh, you need to be able to go after them with more agility. And um, so so that, you're right. And then many times uh, the landscape is changing as well, uh, right around us. So we have to be able to commit that. That's important. Yeah, I just want to, it just sounds like that's an important element in this role and in this type of work is to be flexible and nuanced. And uh, and uh, that just to me is is interesting. Uh, Samir, let's let's go to the next question with you. What are the top two or three large projects you're working on and the, and the main challenges you're seeing with those projects? Yeah, the first one that comes to mind is uh, expanding our digital front door. Uh, we've been working hard for the last year to use uh, design and consumer journeys to recreate our uh, app and web-based assets. And you know, now the chassis build, the basic functionality is here. So how do we take it to the next level and make it more purposeful? Because, you know, as anybody knows, within the digital front door, you can do almost 10, 15 different things. But which one of those in our environment for our group of consumers will lead to the best uh, outcome for our company? And to your earlier point, don't want to create a digital front door that brings in a lot of uh, seekers, but then our environmental operational bandwidth cannot meet it. So it's balancing the digital front door and access at the same time uh, is what we are working on. And obviously there are layers of, do I really need to uh, bring this patient in or can I take care of them asynchronously or synchronously through a digital asset? So that's one that is big. The second one is uh, more around the shared service, which is around analytics and automation. Uh, we have spent about a year uh, kicking the tires on it, understanding how it may may not work in our environment. And in 2022, we are going to really take it up uh, not, uh, many notches and want to make sure that we have at least 50 to 100 digital workers that are reducing the burden on our uh, human FTEs. And the goal here or the marker of success is not how many FTEs we can reduce. I think that's the biggest uh, you know, pitfall of any automation project is if you think your desired goal is less people working for you, our desired goal is to have those people be more efficient and work on more complicated cases that require human interaction. So you know, your example of, I want to speak to a human, if you are calling about a bill and you know you have a $25 problem, the system should be able to pick up most likely some years calling about this $25 charge. Can I waive it as part of my framework? Uh, and you know, I've been through these cases where a credit card company will say, are you calling about the $25 late charge? Click one <laughs> yes. Would you like us to waive it? Sure, and I'm done. And I couldn't be happier. I don't want to speak to anybody. But if I have like seven charges, one I want to dispute, that's when I don't want to speak to a you know, a uh, computer, I want to speak with a human. So 
the system automatically having that work done is a great example. On the clinical side, you know, the in-basket is the bane of every clinician's existence. So we are going to be doing a lot of work in partnership with Epic, how to use automation in the in-basket so that as a clinician, I'm only responding to messages that require clinical input, messages like, you know, uh, hey, I need an appointment, what are the side effects of Lipitor? 85% of those messages, no human should be touching anywhere. Uh, and you can have a quick response. So uh, we'll be working a lot on the uh, user experience. So we've talked a lot today about the consumer experience. Uh, I'm pretty sure Omer and his company are also working on the employee experience. Uh, you know, I want technology to be such a friction-free and delightful experience that people choose to come and work for us, not just because of what they make or the mission, but their experience in using technology. Very good, Omer, top projects? Yeah, so um, so I would have to say that some of the things that Samir mentioned um, keep us busy as well in terms of our top priorities, um, like the consumer front door. Um, we continue to enhance it because, you know, that's the gateway. And we talked earlier about Amazonification. And so, you know, that becomes front and center, um, our, um, our um, mobile application, our web interface. And we continue to enhance it. Um, and finding up new more capabilities to more personalize it. So lots of initiative in really taking it to the next level, including your chatbots, trying to see um, how we can automate a lot of it, like Samir was alluding to, uh, to the extent that it doesn't become cumbersome or bothersome for the consumer. And what's the right time when we switch over to a real person, uh, all those things happening in that gamut of things. The, the other um, uh, big area uh, under the, I would say, consumer experience and digital health is, uh, uh, all our uh, key initiatives under what we call enterprise voice of the consumer, uh, because at the end of the day, um, you know, it's about the consumer, right? So we want to make sure that we capture the feedback that we're getting from the consumer, whether it's through the surveys or whether it's online, trying to assimilate it and use that to drive our future actions, a lot of um, strategies there. You know, virtual health, we continue to, all these are kind of under the digital health umbrella. So virtual health, we keep on enhancing. Uh, today, we offer um, virtual health capabilities, not just in the inpatient, but care at home, remote patient monitoring, the entire continuum of patient care, but we continue to enhance it um, so it becomes more personalized and easy for the users. Um, automation, I think somebody was mentioning this earlier, um, we see a lot of value, so we are really um, looking into this very seriously um, in terms of applying like robotic process automation or RTA how we can digitize and automate some of those repetitive and mundane tasks um, behind the scenes um, that really uh, can be easily done or um, can be easily emulated by software, uh, you know, emulate human actions through the software. So looking at different areas like supply chain management, a lot of opportunities, revenue cycle management, tremendous opportunities there, especially in today's age when efficiency is key. Um, and so, and then we have a lot of um, initiatives uh, currently uh, that you may lump under the data and analytics. Um, and so we are very high level. Uh, we are um, trying to stand up um, our data governance. So we already had data governance and depending on who you ask, right? If you may get different answers, but from our perspective, data governance is a perpetual new line of operation. Um, especially now that we have been uh, integrating with other uh, uh, healthcare organizations, more specifically our teammates with uh, Wake Forest. And, and that adds a new dimension to us in terms of research and academic data. Um, so we wanna make sure that our governance has the capability and can um, be enterprise-wide. Um, and then um, we are marching forward onto um, uh, this AMM, um, uh, model from HIMSS, AMM analytics, maturity and option model. So we're trying to move towards a maturity there. And part of that is also implementing a master data management solution. So those are some key big things that we're working on. Excellent. All right, let's do our Ask a Co-Panelist feature. Uh, Omar, do you have a question for Samir? Yeah, um, you know, this, is, um, this is in line with what we've been talking. So I want you to definitely get uh, Samir's thoughts. Um, that in today's um, age, um, in this pandemic age, what, what we see is uh, a lot of organizations focusing on really solving problems and don't seem to have as much appetite 
um, to do experiments or to you know uh, dabble into these um, uh, innovative technologies or disruptive technologies um, uh, because the proven ROI may not be there. Um, so um, you ask those organizations, they feel experimentation is necessary um, because of their future viability, but then you've got others who don't have the appetite to do that because of their losses. Um, so what are your thoughts? I mean, what's the, what's the way forward? How do you see it um, uh, foot in both areas or um, pick one or what are your thoughts? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, a few things, as I mentioned earlier, healthcare is a very narrow margin business. So you have to be very pragmatic about how much experimentation and how much, uh, you know, uh, disruptive technologies as a buzzword can you really bring into. Uh, however, it does not have to be super expensive or have multi-million dollar, uh, you know, outlays. One of the ways where I've tried to balance that is in partnership with startups where, you know, they are doing much of that disruption or analysis of new technology. And what we provide is thought leadership, subject matter expertise, and an environment where some of these things can be tested out. I mean, if you go back a decade, you know, having your own innovation lab uh, with, you know, multi-million dollar uh, pay-to-play type of outlays used to be the trend. I think many of us have learned that's not our core skill set. Uh, we need to focus on slightly different areas, but we can partner. So partnership is a model that I really like to do some of what you're asking. Um, but then at the same time, you know, you really have to be good as a senior executive to understand the way the wind is blowing in your organization. If you are, for example, fighting the fourth uh, peak of COVID, and you show up in a senior meeting, hey, look at this new robotic tool I ran into and I'm going to spend two days working on this, whereas everybody is putting extra shifts to fight COVID, that will land pretty bad for you as it should. So really understanding the timing uh, and uh, where you put that effort in is important. And then finally, you know, uh, experimentation by its nature happens a lot uh, from an agile mindset especially in the experience layer you're building in the organization. So I think if done for the right kind of uh, uh, gaps, done in the right kind of uh, guardrails, you can still create a culture of innovation and transformation. Finally, you know, I've always had this mindset that innovation without translation at scale is a very expensive science hobby. So I'm always trying to push that, okay, it's great to be innovative, but how much of that really translates into your organization or somebody else's doesn't have to be in your own organization. So we have to be very clear about the motive. It shouldn't be innovation for the sake of calling oneself innovative. It could be for creation of non-core revenue. It could be for you know, assessing disruptive ways to solve problems that you haven't been able to solve but really understanding why am I going to engage in this six month project with exit and with entry and exit criteria predefined is a good way to create uh, you know, a mindset around it. That's great, very thank good. you so much. Yeah, very insightful. Samir, do you have a question for Omar? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Omar, I would love to hear from you. What are the uh, digital projects that are not facing a patient uh, that are more inward facing towards your users or operations that you're most excited by? So it, it, it may sound like a cliche, but um, but it's almost like I had to say, but part of my um, responsibilities with uh, data analytics, uh, I'll have to say it's the promise uh, with AI, um, a tremendous amount of promise. Um, so applying artificial intelligence to improve um, our health uh, from drug discovery, um, to more efficient hospital operations, yeah. uh, to better diagnosis, right? What we're seeing already in like radiology and other spaces, just tremendous opportunity. And I just feel that we're scratching the surface. Um, and so so that's that's really one key area and all the uh, value that it brings within. Wonderful. All right, very good. I think we have time for a quick last word. So, um, Omer, let's start with you. Any parting advice for uh, your colleagues in the chief data officer position? So, just a, uh, <coughs> I would say a couple of thoughts. Um, so, the one I think um, 
what Samir um, and I've talked about um, in way of trends and focus areas from um, AI, ML, um, digitization, automation. Um, these are all multi-year journeys um, and um, with maturity curves and they require education of the organization, change management, both from a cultural and process perspective. So it's about getting started. So um, message would be that if we haven't started in organizations in these areas, then just do it, um, just get started. It takes time to get these going. The second one, just wanna highlight, um, you know, that um, we won't be able to do anything that we do uh, without our team. So our biggest asset are our teammates. And one of the things that we have started noticing recently um, is the mass exodus because of the pandemic. Um, and we're seeing a lot of people resigning across. Um, I just uh, will just share one stat with you quickly with our audiences. It just uh, caught my eye that according to the US Department of Labor, uh, during the month of April, May, and June, um, a total of 11.5 million workers quit their jobs. Um, and recent studies indicate that it's not over. And more importantly, relevant to us is Microsoft uh, found that 41% uh, of, of the people are actually considering quitting. And that number actually jumps to 54% when you just focus on Gen Zs. Uh, so this is a phenomenon that has uh, that will um, strike healthcare tech our teammates, um, if not already. So we just have to be, um, you know, um, we just have to make sure that we are uh, really transparent with our teammates and um, communicate with them very openly and listen to their um, needs, desires, and grudges if they have, because that's going to be very important. It's very hard to uh, turnover is expensive, and especially when you talk about our area, which is, you know, like uh, scientists and digital teammates, it's even more difficult to replace those teammates. Very good, Samir. Final thought? Yeah, I think uh, the talent uh, challenges are real, uh, seem to get worse by day and it will be years before it gets different. So uh, fully agree with that. The other thing I would say is that, uh, you know, organizations that are taking value-based stance, like my organization took a stance against racism when the George Floyd murder happened. Uh, Omer spoke about uh, the disparities in health, which either digital can make worse or can make better. Uh, those are things that I'm very proud to be a part of an organization that has taken a science-based and, uh, you know, fighting against racism based stance and uh, people will look for that uh, when they choose who they work for. The mission of healthcare is no longer just being in a healthcare organization. And it's really important that leaders get comfortable having these tough discussions, being vulnerable and uh, taking an apolitical, but a strong stance against some of these systemic injustices that just seem to perpetuate. All right. Great conversation. Uh, regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck. You'll receive an email when the on-demand recording of this webinar is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our panel, Dr. Samir Badlani and Omer Awan, and I want to thank you, our attendees, for coming. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.